from Moses, the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Service, this is the In Her Boots podcast, a show about women cultivating the sustainable and organic agriculture movement and how she does it. My name is Lisa Kiverest, and I founded and lead the award-winning Moses In Her Boots project, providing training, resources, and support for women farmers. I'm a farmer myself, running in serendipity with my family in Wisconsin, and am the author of Soil Sisters, a toolkit for women farmers. The In Her Boots podcast celebrates the collaborative spirit of us women farmers and all women working to transform our food system and steward our land, sharing ideas and inspiration with each other. Whether you're a woman with a dream of starting your own farm or already have your hands deep in the soil, there's something for you here. Be sure to subscribe so you won't miss anything. Join us as Claire Hinz shares how she cross-pollinates multiple hats with farming, including earning, while farming, her PhD in sustainability education with her dissertation focusing on women farmers and permaculture. Claire runs Elsewhere Farm in Herbster, Wisconsin, near the south shore of Lake Superior. If you can farm here, you can farm anywhere, she says. The farm uses organic practices and permaculture design principles and has over 700 fruit and nut trees. Her intensely planted market garden features heirloom and open-pollinated vegetable varietals, bees, and rare-breed Icelandic chickens. We are back with Claire Hintz of Elsewhere Farm, and as we've been talking about in all of the episodes with you, Claire, you wear a lot of different hats, right? And you like having different things, but one big hat of yours has always been the academic side and the research side and the science side, etc., And you, a couple years ago now, got your PhD, right? Because that's so helpful in farming. (laughs) I understand the pre-qualification there. Or maybe there's another reason why you felt compelled and then you did amazing work that we want to hear about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, it's so that I can be called Dr. Farmer. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. There's, there's a couple of reasons. So like as a permaculturist, um, I always think about multiple functions for everything I do. So how, how many ways does this apply? What happened, um, practically speaking, was I was ready to start farming full time. I was leaving my full time job at a college And I thought, you know, I'm a solo farmer. I don't have a partner. If I ever get injured, seriously, on the farm, what am I going to do? Maybe now's the moment to get a PhD. And so I have it, you know, in case something happens to me. Um, And I can can teach. I can do some other academic work. So I thought, and I also thought, if I I don't do this now, I'm probably never going to go back and do it. Um, Just time purposes, you know, the farm's going to grow further and I'm just not, there's never going to be a moment. So, uh, it was then or never. Yeah. (laughs) And I jumped. And, um, so the PhD is in sustainability education, focusing on regenerative agriculture, the newest term for organic, the newest term for sustainable. Uh, but, uh, the idea was also I wanted to have a learning center on my farm and I wanted to be able to bring in college students to learn on my farm, bring other people in. And having that credential helps set this, the tone of what people can expect um, from a, a, you know, a learning experience on the farm. Um, it also helps, ironically, sometimes talk to different consultants and NRCS agents. Um, <laughs> if you put a doctor in front of your name, you get a little more respect. Uh, but... Um, that doesn't happen too often. Um, it was also an incredible way. So 98%, something like 98% of farmers in this country have off-farm jobs. 
And, you know, so what, what kind of income would I bring in to my farm that I could work from home that uh, would be somewhat flexible where most of that pressure, you know, of that other job was in the winter. So I thought, okay, well, something in research and academics, you know, would fit. So um, the PhD just opened incredible doors for me. Um, it's, it's a um, distance program through Prescott College in Arizona. It's the only um, program, PhD program in sustainability education. Um, and as I was going through the program, my grad assistantship was editing a journal, an online journal called Sustain- the Journal of Sustainability Education, which is a free open source journal online. Well, that also then turned into the editorship of that journal, which I'm still doing and still provides some extra income. Um, and, you know, I force my grad students to get it done in the winter months. <laughs> um, and um, that works out really well with my farm schedule. And, you know, I've taken other jobs, you know, throughout the farm expansion and that one has remained and it's it's just been great to have that flexibility the phd also gave me the dissertation also gave me so my 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 dissertation was looking at persistence strategies for women farmers in wisconsin and minnesota and i honestly didn't think this part through but what i ended up with out of this dissertation was a set of amazing women mentors who have all been farming um, somewhere between 10 and 30 years, mostly on the 20 year side, you know, and these were the women who were the pioneers in organic agriculture. Um, and I just learned so much from them. And it was just an amazing way to start farming full time to have this sort of mothership <laughs> behind me. Um, and so that's, that's the, the, that's why I got a PhD. <laughs> but it's, you know, and what's fascinating is the fact that you can do all of this so remotely where you are. Yeah. yeah. That's really opened up huge opportunity yeah. in education. Well, period, and shout, but- out, shout out to um, the fact that we have a phone cooperative in northern Wisconsin that values high-speed internet. <laughs> so yes. we have fiber where we are. Really? Oh, yes. good for you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and um, and so that made the distance work very comfortable. And, um, you know, we do a lot of video conferencing and it's just great, you know. I, and and that, those skills translate into any other video conferencing that I do now, you know, for, yeah. for, 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 uh, for um, different boards and stuff that I'm on. So, yeah. <laughs> so how long did the whole process take? It was a four-year program. I, I technically finished in three and a half. I was trying to fit into the farming schedule, you know, <laughs> knowing that I was really launching that next summer and I, you know, maybe didn't want to have to collapse <laughs> from the PhD because it's, I mean, it's an exhausting, incredible process. Um, I have not had children, but I imagine it's something akin to childbirth. And in fact, um, my running buddy while I was going through the PhD program is a doula. She's a midwife. And um, she said, you know, Claire, when you're getting really mad and you've had it with everything, that's when you know you're really close to finishing your dissertation. Because uh, that's what it's like, in, you know, with, <laughs> with mom is about to have a baby. I was like, okay, okay. All right. I'm close. I'm close. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I tried to finish up in December so that I had a couple months to collapse you know, before the farming season really kicked in in May. Um, it was a fabulous program. And um, I had a very excellent um, core mentor who um, made sure that I was on track to finish on my timeline. Um, and, uh, and, and we worked really well together. We're both very organized planning type people. But I had the luxury of, um, 
having an assistantship. And so that made it possible to go through um, and do that while I was farming. And your thesis itself, you interviewed, I've read it. It's a very good read, by the way. But I mean, oh, you, 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 it was also an opportunity for you to learn personally because you interviewed yes. these women. Yes. Yeah. And it was, um, it was an asset for me to be a farmer because it opened up some conversation that may not have otherwise happened if I had just been a researcher. Um, it may have um, biased me as I was looking at patterns in their conversation, but um, there's actually a, a, a way of planning for that. So I had other people checking my ethnographic data to make sure that the patterns that I was seeing were ones that they saw too. Um, and so there was there's ways of checking with that bias. Um, but uh, it was an incredible opportunity to meet a bunch of amazing women farmers all over Wisconsin and Minnesota, doing all kinds of things, um, everything from... Um, uh, raising Navajo churro sheep to um, a mega CSA near Madison. So, yeah, just just incredible women. And what were some of your conclusions or commonalities on the resilience side? With yeah, these women? Uh, so I really thought I would find a bunch of women who were excellent at marketing or excellent at business planning or something like that. And that was not at all the case. Um, and I had to laugh because my bachelor's degree is a liberal arts degree. And it really came down to some some liberal arts principles, which, you know, really, if I can sum it up, it was attitude. Really? <laughs> but um, some of the practical things. So they all, so I interviewed 14 women in depth. And, um, and if anybody's interested, um, they can contact me and I'll go through the methodology of why that's a valid, valid research um, program. But they, they, the patterns that stood out, they really had a strong ecocentric ethics. In other words, they really cared about the land. And um, not that other farmers don't care, um, that don't persist, but um, that value helped them carry through the tough times. Uh, and having a values-driven business really enabled them to keep going um, through everything. And, and that, you know, that just that sheer uh, persistence was sometimes all you can say, you know. Yeah. Uh, they also had some way, though, very practically, they all had some way of weathering the learning curve. So it generally took them about 10 years to realize um, a gelled business plan, a gelled system on their farms. At, the, at about the 10-year mark, they were starting to let go of some enterprises that weren't fitting with everything else. Um, and I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, this is crazy. You know, no business ever makes it. You know, you can't wait 10 years for a business to be successful in uh. the regular business world. And I was sort of alarmed about this, which everybody actually ought to be. But then someone shared with me that if you're in the arts, there's kind of a 10 year mark where you get really good at singing or you get really good at playing an instrument or you get really good at painting, whatever it is. And I thought, oh, this is a craft. This is more of a craft. This is why farming is so hard. It's a business and a craft. So, but they had some way of weathering that 10 year learning curve. Uh, it could be that they didn't own their farm, that someone else owned it, um, and they were they were managing the business. It could be that um, they had a partner that worked off the farm. It could be that they worked off the farm either in the uh, winter or that um, they they switched out. You know, some years they would work more off the farm, some years not. Um, and 
it was really not the case that I, I really thought I'd see a lot more women who inherited a farm from some from family members that they would have had some farm background growing up. That was not at all true. Even with that generation of pioneers in the organic farming movement, um, they were coming from other backgrounds than farming, um, even then. So, and in, in fact, a lot of them talked about the ones that did have farming family backgrounds talked about that as an impediment in the sense that they were never considered potential farmers as women. Um, and so they had to go off and, and take a break for a while before they realized they really did want to be a farmer and they, they'd have to find their own way to do that. And that, and that kind of leads me to the, the next one, which is they all had communities of practice. They all had regional communities of practice, whether that was Moses or land stewardship or SFA, any number of, of uh, organized groups. It could have just been neighbors um, who were conventional farmers who could help them think through, you know, um, their dairy operation a little bit. Um, and um, that stood out as a, a strong reason why they persisted over time. Um, and the last, the last one that I wanted to just touch on was, um, again, values driven. Um, they, they really saw themselves as working in resistance to a dominant paradigm in mm. agriculture, in business, in gender relations, all of these elements. And so, um, <laughs> maybe that, maybe that's just part of being a contrary farmer, like Wendell Berry, a la Wendell Berry. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, I think sometimes just that sort of sheer resistance to, and, and, and fury and anger and frustration, um, you know, can carry you through a lot if you can put it into productive ends. Um, and, you know, some were focused on more community issues, social justice issues. Some had water quality as their top priority, but they all had these, you know, a very strong sense of themselves and, and not exactly hopeful in the sense of this is all going to turn out right, but hopeful as in we have to do this work. So, wow. <laughs> That's a message that is now documented. Yes. <laughs> Thanks to your work. Yes. Interesting. So you would do it again. I would totally do it again. Yeah, and 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 um, and that's the nerd part of me for sure. Yeah. Um, and we were even sitting at our celebratory dinner at graduation and talking with our core advisor, and she's like, "Oh, would you do this again?" You know, same question. And, and a couple of us looked at each other and said, "You know, yeah, we'd start tomorrow. You got a you got an idea for us? Let's do a different one." You know, having done um, uh, ethnographic study using some art as a component of the research really sparked um, the idea of um, communicating some of these broader issues through art. So, you know, how are we going to have a dialogue with people um, in a lot of, with a lot of different backgrounds around what we need to do to revitalize our rural communities or our lands or protect water quality or protect bees or, you know, any number of issues that are confronting us. And art is one way, in addition to food, uh, that is a that is a way of talking across a lot of lines, and so that's really intriguing to me. I don't think I'm going to go back for another degree. I'm done. I'm done. I don't need to. But um, it's 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 definitely a continued research interest that I can pursue, you know, um, when I'm not uh, up to my knees in <laughs> in stuff. Other terrific, <laughs> great. Thanks, Claire. Thanks for listening to our In Her Boots podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kiverest, with the Moses In Her Boots project. This episode's audio engineer was Liam Kiverest of TechSocket.net. 
The podcast was brought to you by the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Service, MOSES. The mission of MOSES is to educate, inspire, and empower farmers to thrive in a sustainable organic system of agriculture. For more information on MOSES, in her boots, and a bounty of organic resources, check out mosesorganic.org.